Okay, we are live. We have Alexander Mercurius in London, in London with us, and we are very, very honored, very happy to have a man who needs no introduction, Mr. Jeffrey Sachs, Director for the Center of Sustainable Development. And uh, Mr. Sachs, it is our pleasure and honor to have you with us. Oh, good to be demand. with you. That, that Thank you a lot. Thank you very, very much. And we have about 30 to 40, 45 minutes with uh, Mr. Sachs. So we are just going to jump right into it. I just want to say a quick hello to everyone that's watching us on all the platforms. Thank you to all our moderators. Alexander in London, I pass it off to you because everyone is, uh, is absolutely yeah. waiting to hear from, uh, from Mr. Sachs so we can talk about the, uh, the global uh, economic crisis and the geopolitical implications. Alexander, I pass it off to you. Absolutely. And can I just say we are indeed very privileged to have Mr. Sachs here because I think that events are proceeding very much as I remember him saying at various times that they would. And when you're yeah. in London, when you're in London, you can see that. Now, this is an extraordinary crisis because there's an economic aspect to it. There's a geopolitical aspect to it. The two intersect. Um, Mr. Sachs was both a uh, witness, I think, at some of the key events which led to this geopolitical crisis. And, of course, he's been writing about the economics for a long time. And, of course, you've had a front seat, I believe, at the G20 recently in Indonesia, where probably you're able to see some of the geopolitical divisions starting to grow. So let's let's go straight in, as Alex says. Um, would you agree, first of all, that the geopolitics have been an absolute element in this crisis? And, in fact, without them, it would not have the kind of crisis that we wouldn't have the kind of crisis that we have. And perhaps you can take us a little back and discuss at your leisure those aspects of the geopolitical crisis, the relations with Russia, where things began to go hideously wrong. It's a broad question, but I'm shaping it in that way so that you can discuss any point you wish and develop your, your views as you wish. Well, th thanks a lot. Of course, this is a geopolitical crisis. And uh, what's at stake is uh, how the world is uh, going to be shaped for many years to come. And there is, is a view that I've wanted and held for a long time, which is that we have a, an open, peaceful, interconnected world. And there's another view, which is that we're divided uh, into camps and at war with each other, whether wars uh, on, the, on the margins of these two camps or something uh, even dreadfully worse. And we're right now, you know, really at, the, uh, uh, at, at a, a moment of truth for the world, and it's not clear which way we're going. You know, for me, you, you mentioned uh, uh, I've been a witness to this for a long time. And indeed, uh, I, I really was <laughs> a witness to these events uh, already 33 years ago. I was the lead advisor to Poland uh, in its first post-communist government. Uh, I was then advisor to uh Gorbachev's economic team through uh, Grigory Yavlinsky in 1990 and 91. I became advisor to Yeltsin in 1991 to 1993. And I was advisor to uh, Leonid Kuchma, first uh, president of independent Ukraine in uh, 93. So I watched from the very beginning. And, you know, I'm a I'm, I'm a softy and a, and a bit of an idealist, so I, I really liked Gorbachev. Many people did not for many reasons, but I really liked Gorbachev's vision of a world that was at peace. He was really a, a man of peace. His fundamental point was uh, don't shoot, and uh, that meant the unraveling of the Soviet Union in the end. He, he was the one who uh, pulled the plug on on the Warsaw Pact and thought that the other side, the, the US-led NATO side would uh, understand that 
there was an opportunity actually for uh, a peaceful world that didn't have these two competing blocks. And I signed on to that vision. I, I always believed in the common European home. So people call me naive, stupid. Maybe I am. But anyway, I believe that it it's, was the right way to go. And we obviously uh, have seen that utterly, completely, totally, disastrously come crashing down. And so I pondered for 30 years uh, how we got so horribly off track. And um, I think it's pretty clear that uh, you know both sides played into this, but I utterly resent and did resent already 30 years ago that the U.S. couldn't get it through its, or U.S. leaders couldn't get it through their sometimes thick skulls that uh, Russia didn't have to be an enemy, uh, that it could actually just be a counterpart, even a partner on many things, and that uh, at a time of duress at the uh, end of the Soviet moment, it was time actually to find a path to peace. Even before that, you know, perhaps naively, I, I thought that Gorbachev's attempt to uh, democratize the Soviet Union was good and should have been supported also economically. But I have to tell you, perhaps the most amazing single moment of my professional life was actually being in the Kremlin Uh, In December 1991, when Boris Yeltsin walked across the room, entered a room from a far door, walked across the room to where I was heading a a small economics delegation, sat down and said, gentlemen, because it was all men, gentlemen, I want to tell you the Soviet Union is finished. Uh, And he pointed to the far door and uh, said, I've just met with the leaders of uh, the, the uh, Soviet military, and they have agreed to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So I heard that literally out of Yeltsin's mouth that, that moment, and um, believe that it uh, augured uh, peace and cooperation, and obviously that has not come to pass. So yes, this is a geopolitical crisis. This is not uh, a, a war between... Russia and and Ukraine mainly. This is a war between Russia and the West, if you will, uh, especially a war between uh, Russia and the U.S. But you know, we use those terms. It's it's a war uh, between uh, small groups uh, leading uh, these countries, and especially in the U.S., the neocons who have. Uh, led U.S. foreign policy basically for the last 30 years, and I think have led it disastrously wrong. Absolutely. Now, can I just, because a lot of of things there, but first of all, you talked about Eastern Europe. How is it that Eastern Europe, not just the West, has become so radicalized? Because you, I I remember Tadeusz Mazowiecki, who was the Prime Minister of Poland. He came across to me as an extremely measured, very, you know, sensible, rational man. He did not, it seems to me, seek confrontation with Russians at that time. There was general goodwill. I mean, we also had in the in the Czech Republic, we had a leadership which was also um, willing to work with the Russians. And yet Eastern Europe has also become radicalized. It's now become extremely hostile to Russia. It's almost driving the hostility to Russia within the European Union. Is this a consequence of the divisions? Is this a consequence of NATO expansion? Is that strengthened certain elements within these societies that have sought confrontation? And is NATO expansion the root of the problem? Yeah, these are are great questions and uh, somewhat imponderable or unknowable, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the, the uh, animosities uh, between Poland and Russia are deep. They go back centuries. Uh, uh, we, we, uh, Pol- Poland, of course, remembers being dismembered uh, in part by the Russian Empire, but uh, the Russians remember Poland invading Russia uh, in the times of trouble. So this is a, a conflict that goes back a very long way. But none of that makes any of this inevitable. Uh, it's all how events are shaped and perceived. And 
in the 1990s, there were debates everywhere about the future. So nothing was set uh, in some hard and certain course. And in the U.S., you know, the more we learn and the more we look back, there were debates between the neocons and uh, those who really had the view that, uh, of course, we can have normal relations with Russia. And those debates really did center on the NATO question. Uh, we had hardliners, of course, at the end of the uh, George W. Bush uh, uh, senior uh, administration, and I ran into them in a hard way because when I advised Poland, I knew a lot about how to end a financial crisis, and I made good recommendations, and they worked. But what was fascinating for me, and I didn't understand it at the time, is every recommendation I made was accepted by the White House almost immediately. Uh, it was weird. One day I raised a billion dollars for Poland, literally from morning till night, uh, because I said so. And they said, well, do you think this will work, Mr. Sachs? And I said, this is the right thing to do. And by the end of the day, the billion had been raised for a, a currency stabilization fund. And I, I patted myself on the back. God, I'm, am I good, you know? Uh, and then uh, two years later, when I made very similar recommendations for Yeltsin's government, every single one of them was rejected. And I thought, but come on, I just you just saw in Poland why this works, how it works, and so forth. I didn't really get at the time that I was playing economics and they were playing uh, geopolitics. Uh, I was uh, trying to help salvage a, a, a collapsing economy and they were playing uh, the board game risk. Put your pieces on as many uh, places on the board as, as you can. And I didn't really understand it at the time because I thought we were having an economics uh, discussion and debate. But the point is that as of the mid-1990s, uh, the, the original neocons on the Republican side, uh, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, they, they had their counterparts on the Democratic Party side because this isn't really partisan. This is uh, uh, elite uh, U.S. politics. Uh, Madeleine Albright was a hardliner. Uh, her vision was Central Europe's my place, my home, and Russia's the enemy. And uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, was uh, uh, definitely uh, not, a, not a lover of uh, Russia, I would say. Uh, and so the debate ensued, and Clinton went, Clinton was kind of a weather vane and a, and a, and a political uh, such a political freak. He wanted to win elections and he felt that uh, going with NATO enlargement was the right way to go. He sided with uh, Albright uh, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, his secretary of defense at the time, really a, a gentleman and, and, a, and, a, and a decent man, Bill Perry, uh, wrote in his memoirs 20 years afterwards that this was completely distressing to him that he knew this was the wrong way to go, that this was going to inflame a uh, crisis with Russia that was just being tamped down, that, that he was making uh, his uh, relations with his uh, Russian counterparts. It was working. Uh, they were building a, a new kind of uh, peaceful and trusting relationship, and this was going to blow the whole thing up. But Albright and Holbrook and the other hardliners and Clinton, very typical of him, by the way. Anyway, he went with it, not really thinking much about the consequences. To my mind, our, our greatest historian statesman uh, of the age, really a, a man of unbelievable knowledge and judgment was George Kennan, uh, you know, who ironically was the, the author of the original containment, but he meant it in a completely different way from the version that was actually implemented, a non-military kind of approach. George Kennan knew immediately, this is a, a massive debacle and said so famously in 1997 uh, that this is the new Cold War with Russia. So I watched all of that taking shape with horror because I obviously knew people on both sides. I thought this was a, 
a dreadful mistake. But then the the George W. Bush administration got worse. <laughs> 9-11 uh, freaked uh, the U.S. out uh, and uh, everything went went haywire, but the neocons really uh, took over, uh, led by Cheney, of course. And NATO enlarged seven more countries by 2007, including to the Black Sea with Bulgaria and Romania, including to the Baltics. This is getting pretty damn close. And then in 2008 uh, was uh, Bush's uh, completely provocative, unnecessary extraordinarily dangerous uh, insistence uh, that NATO commit to enlarging to Ukraine and to Georgia, really in a way fulfilling uh, the, the plan spelled out cleverly uh, in uh, Zbig Brzezinski's 1997 book uh, on, uh, on the grand chessboard, where he said, you, you corner Russia, you end Russia's uh, power and influence, and you basically uh, have the uh, the linchpin to controlling Eurasia. And so that, I think, was the, the vision of the neocons. And President Putin, who was basically pro-European when he came into office, uh, said in 2008 uh, at the Bucharest uh, Russia-NATO meeting, which followed one day the uh, the, the NATO summit in Bucharest, he told Bush, you do this, I take back Crimea. You know, don't play this game. And to my mind, all of this was already extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, then uh, Obama came in and uh, like everything in the U.S., he got pulled into the same neocon uh, orbit, uh, I don't think it was his instinct or his knowledge, but he was very inexperienced. And uh, Hillary Clinton was part of that. Uh, and uh, of course, Victoria Newland, who we've come to know so well uh, during all of this period, started to guide policy. And I think when you look back, uh, clearly um, the Yanukovych period is extraordinarily interesting and important in this story because Yanukovych actually rather cleverly and skillfully was trying to keep some kind of foothold and balance in the midst of this uh, emerging great power confrontation over his country. And so Yanukovych wisely said, we stay neutral. Wisely said, Russia keeps its claim on the Crimean naval base dating back to 1783. Don't topple this. And Yanukovych was in, in, his, in a way, and I think in retrospect with a lot of skill actually, was maintaining some kind of very fragile equilibrium, but the neocon, <laughs> the, the neocon gears were turning. And of course, the US uh, helped to play into Stoke and God knows what else, and we don't know all the details, to overthrow Yanukovych in, in February 2014. And the war started at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and the war started because the equilibrium, which was extraordinarily fragile at that point, collapsed. Mm -hmm. And we've been at war now for eight years. And it's uh, absolutely a disaster. First and foremost, a, a complete tragedy for Ukraine, but a disaster for the world. Can I just ask about the Europeans? Because the thing that utterly baffles me is that Germany especially is a country which has had really unfortunate, unhappy experiences in this part of the world. The First World War, the Second World War, you would have thought the German leadership, Merkel specifically, but you know others as well, would know better than to allow this kind of crisis to happen, you know, in Europe and would understand the importance of maintaining a relationship with the Russians. Why have they not exerted themselves more in this situation? Why did they allow that decision to happen in Bucharest in 2008, the invitation? 
Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing yeah. to me because in mm-hmm. 2008, I spoke to European leaders who said, what the hell is George Bush doing? This is so dangerous, it's provocative. They told me in private, not in public, very typical of Europe. There was no confusion in France and Germany and a lot of other places about how dangerous Bush, Bush's proposal for NATO enlargement was, how wrongheaded it was. They knew. They knew right away. Even uh, Merkel said in, in that rather disastrous interview she gave recently, she said in 2008 this was wrong. But they don't speak publicly. Of course, Germany, for all the reasons that are obvious, uh, didn't have a foreign policy voice for decades and wouldn't speak publicly. The UK would never second guess, uh, even for one moment, anything the United States says, no matter how stupid, only to double down and and be even more excited than the US on, on any adventure. And the others did not it, what they, they blocked, ta- tactically, they blocked an actual uh, accession path, uh, a so-called MAP, but they didn't stop the declaration. They, didn't, they did not really stand up. And as has been told to me by many European leaders, we have no say. Why that is structurally is fascinating, but I've heard things that make you cringe from European leaders when they say, oh, no, we have no say, that's, that's America. And it, it is a mystery to me, by the way. Europe is, it's a big grown-up place. It's got a, a lot more history and experience than the United States. It's been through uh, a lot more. It is the Western civilization. You would think they'd be able to say something to the United States that, mm, not a great idea, but they don't. And I would say on the whole, by the way, you know, I, I liked Merkel. I thought her recent interview was a disaster. Uh, I tend to agree with you, Alexander, that um, what she says now about Minsk II isn't even what she really meant uh, at the time. Uh, and it was a strange way to try to justify herself, which was to say, I didn't, never meant it, which obviously was its own uh, bit of a diplomatic disaster recently. But I think she probably did mean it, but the weakness of it was unbelievable. My Ukrainian friends, or erstwhile friends, because they're not friends these days, so I had lots of them, but they don't like what I'm saying. Uh, but in any event, uh, they, they said, um, Minsk too? Of course not. We're never going to do that. Uh, but they, I said, you signed it. Oh, it doesn't matter. But Germany and France should have known better. Uh, actually, it does matter. It, it, not only did they sign it, it actually made sense. Uh, it, it, it was the right thing to do. Mm. Uh, and uh, the fact that uh, a government just says, no, we don't care, is, you actually shouldn't behave that way if you expect to, uh, in, in, in a difficult and dangerous circumstance. It, it, it's a bit reckless. But Germany didn't speak up. At all, not a word. Mm-hmm. France, not not a word. So this is this is uh, this steady descent into uh, into disaster. And at the end of 2021, when the escalation was imminent, I called the White House. Not that they like to hear from me at all, but I called. And I said, "Stop this! This is this war can still be." avoided this, or not the war, because there was a war going on, but this uh, disaster, this escalation can be avoided. President Putin has put on the table key points that you absolutely can negotiate. Uh, This NATO question is real. Uh, And Crimea, this can be solved. And Donbass, there is the Minsk II agreement. So I said, negotiate. They said, no, 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 we'll never negotiate over NATO. Uh, and I said, come on. And then, and then I was told, oh, don't worry. They're, NATO's never going to enlarge to Ukraine. 
by the way, which I think is a line, not actually their true meaning, but just their gimmick. But in any event, I said, okay, if you say so, say it, maybe you'll save Ukraine from, from a greater war. No, 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 we can't say it. It's just unbelievable. So there was no, no diplomacy and, uh, and, the, and, the, and it exploded. And I tried to point out to them, look, you can't say NATO's never going to enlarge and then sign three times high-level documents in 2021 under your first year of the administration in, with the State Department in Ukraine, with the Defense Department in Ukraine, and with the NATO summit in 2021, that NATO is going to enlarge and then tell me on the phone, no, don't worry about it. Come on. That's not serious. But mm. it isn't serious. And it's extraordinarily dangerous and more than dangerous. It's just absolutely got us into this colossal mess. Absolutely. And I mean, as a European, I mean, what could America have done to Germany and Europe in 2008, which is worse than the situation we are in at the moment with a war, with a terrible economic crisis? Did people not understand the economic interconnections which have built up? over the time that, you know, if you start embarking on sanctions wars, seek confrontation, it's going to have an effect on your own societies. At least in Europe it is. I don't know to what extent it is in the US. You know, it, first of all, of course, Europe could have stopped this, but it would have taken, at, at a minimum, it would have taken France, Germany and Italy, the leaders, uh, all of whom, by the way, early this year were on the same uh, track that there was a way to uh, either prevent the war or stop the war, but acting together, which they did not do. And they were unwilling to stand up to the U.S. on that. Uh, but I think another interesting observation in how the U.S. kind of batted Macron aside, Schultz aside, Draghi aside in, in the first months of this year is an observation that I heard from another European leader, which I think is pretty astute, which is that, look, the U.S. has moved on. The real front line of uh, U.S. foreign policy is not Western Europe. The real front line really is, uh, is the Baltic states, is uh, Poland, is Ukraine. They rather like that fact. That is the, the, the Eastern, more Eastern countries. Now they're really something. They're, they're big in the U.S., uh, imperial view. And somehow this is even more disheartening uh, to, to uh, Western Europe. But the fact of the matter is, I actually have no doubt in my mind, having been around for 40 years uh, with the, these processes, that if the European leaders had said clearly privately, publicly, any which way to Biden. No, this is not right. And we don't want this war. And we've got to do this a different way. And you've got to sit down with Putin because that's what this is really about. And he's laid out a basis for sitting down. It would have happened because the U.S. could not resist that, actually. So who bluffed whom or who said, wait, or who said, don't worry, Hard to know, but the Europeans lost the chance. And Brussels, of course, is useless in this. That's part of the problem. Uh, Brussels has been useless and completely onside. And uh, your, your country, Alexander, is uh, just so excited to be fighting the second Crimean War. They can't even uh, they can't even contain themselves. Uh, you know, Palmerston didn't get his way in 1856, so we're going to get our way in uh, 2022. It's a, almost a joy for them. Uh, terrible to say. Sadly, very true. Do you have time for one more question for me? Of, this, of course. So it's about it's about the fact that, that to my mind, all the Brzezinski plans, all these grand chess games, which. Ignore the people, because if you treat countries as pieces on a chessboard or squares on a chessboard, you're, you're already going, I think, seriously wrong. But it's so 20th century. It's so part of the world in a way that existed in the first half of the 20th century. We didn't end well, by the way. There is now another world 
beyond Europe. We have uh, uh, you were you were in Bali. You saw all of these other countries now asserting themselves. Um, we're fighting. I mean, it also seems to me we not only created a disaster; it's a disaster fighting battles left over from 170 years ago, which have lost their meaning now, or at least that's so it seems to me. Well, look, uh, you're you're exactly right, and and it's uh, complicated in in two different ways. First, a lot of this is about uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, self-perception that this still is the U.S. century. After all, the U.S. century was, uh, the American century was proclaimed in 1941. It's, it ain't over yet from the point of view of the American leaders. Uh, and so a lot of this is nobody tells us what to do. That's the neocon view. No one can tell us what to do. And the view that the uh, the neocons have that the rest of the world will fall into line. And I think one of the big miscalculations, of course, that uh, that uh, the U.S. so-called strategists made this year was, well, Russia steps into it and the world isolates Russia. And of course, that didn't happen. And uh, not only that, when you actually count the populations of the countries and how they vote in the various UN resolutions, for example, typically the, the anti-Russia vote is around 25% of the world population. Uh, it, this is the, the Western world is 450 million in, in, in Western Europe and 330 million uh, in, in the United States. Uh, so you're uh, at about a tenth of the world population and you can add in uh, uh, a few other countries you don't have much of the world population. And what the U.S. Uh, leaders didn't get is that the rest of the world was not buying into the NATO enlargement or rejecting uh, or just simply buying into the U.S. claim that this was an unprovoked war that started on February 24th, 2022 and all the rest. It, it didn't happen. And Russia's not isolated economically. Uh, and um, fine. Okay. They didn't get that. So th this is one part of uh, the naivete. But there's a second part, of course, which you know we haven't really discussed, which is uh, a, a deep part of all of this. And that is the U.S. Uh, battle with China, which uh, would, of course, uh, perhaps be a, a world-ending battle because the U.S. Is, has a deep, deep neurosis right now about what wasn't supposed to happen, which is there wasn't supposed to be a, a competitor. Uh, you know, the idea was unipolar world in 1992. That's the neocon world is if we just uh, keep our uh, gumption, we run things. But then along came China, not just China, by the way, because India is not exactly in anyone's orbit at all. India is another civilization. And other regions are not exactly falling into line. And the U.S. doesn't get that because it's about 30 years out of date in how it understands the world economy, world structure, uh, and, and all the rest. So the U.S. is actually in a two-front battle uh, and saw the, uh, the Ukraine side as uh, kind of the small one. Then we're going to bring Europe and NATO over to uh, our great confrontation with uh, isolating China. And none of this is exactly going to plan, but it's all rising in danger also. So I don't think we should take any comfort for a moment in, in anything that's happening, because the truth is this crisis continues to escalate. And both sides of this crisis have a lot of escalatory room ahead. There's a lot of headroom for this to get a lot worse. And it's not clear, it's not clear at all that the, the sheer recklessness of that and foolishness of that will be understood because we are absolutely a self-dangerous species. 
And um, that's what worries me that uh, we're not done with this story yet because at least the powers that lead the United States right now maintain absolutely the vision that this is a U.S. led world and it's going to stay that way. And of course, structurally, it can't be that way. Mm. So we have a complete collision of vision and reality. But that doesn't mean reality wins in a peaceful stand down. It means that things could get far worse, sad to say. Indeed. And if you look at the world wars, world wars, the two world wars really were partly results of an attempt to impose a vision on the part of certain powers, which was structurally impossible and was bound to be resisted. Jeffrey Sachs, I thank you so much for your words. I, 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 I'm, I'm ended. Perhaps you have more things to say, but I'm going to bring in Alex briefly and see whether Alex has any points to make. Do, and, you, do you have time, uh, Mr. Sachs, for maybe two, three questions sure, from, from the viewers? Yeah. yeah. Hey, look, it's, it's good to talk to you guys because I watch you now. Uh, it's, it's, it's really nice to be in conversation. Thank it's you. Fantastic. It's fantastic to have you here. And everything you described sounds to me like Thucydides trap. That's 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 where we are. Well, yeah. it it is, but you know, you uh, you think that the Peloponnesian Wars didn't work out so well, uh, actually, for either side. Uh, mm. That maybe maybe we could be a little bit more clever than in uh, mm. 404 BC, and mm. uh, that that's that's really the question. Yeah. yeah. Um, let, let's take a, a couple of questions for uh, Mr. Sachs, and uh, we'll wrap it up. From Kirill, uh, hey, Jeffrey, are you familiar with the structural financial crisis theory developed by the Russian economist Mikhail Kazin in the last 20 years? He predicted the globalist world split into currency zones or blocks. I'm not familiar with the theory. I apologize. Uh, but I would say the following about uh, blocks and currency zones um, first, we shouldn't want them. So uh, again, I, I don't uh, tend to believe in uh, deterministic outcomes. I believe that we have choices, though we often make very bad ones. Uh, second, uh, specifically on currency blocks, it's a pretty interesting point and very relevant for us. The uh, U.S. Uh, at the beginning of uh, at the war, said that cutting Russia off from SWIFT was the so-called nuclear option. Uh, it, uh, aside from the horror of uh, the, the use of, of that term in this context anyway, uh, the, the fact is that it proved to be pr pretty, pretty, pretty uh, non-consequential. And the reason is actually quite basic. Uh, and I said so, by the way, to the U.S. government at the time, don't count on your sanctions having so much effect. Nothing much is going to happen. They don't work the way you think and so forth. It was pretty, actually pretty obvious. Uh, but there are many ways to transact. You do not have to go through a U.S. bank, U.S. dollar, and SWIFT. Bottom line, and you can go through yuan, you can go through rupees, you can go through rubles. There are lots of ways to transact. When we teach monetary economics, as I have at Harvard and Columbia for 40 years, you say money's a, a veil. Uh, in other words, it's not the real economy. It's, uh, it, it, it facilitates the economy. And the idea that the dollar is the irreplaceable, indispensable currency and so that that's America's real hold on global power. All that the United States is doing is dramatically accelerating the end of the dollar uh, special prerogatives and privileges because frankly, if, you, if you're not getting along with the United States geopolitically, do not hold dollar reserves. <laughs> They're gonna be grabbed whether you're Venezuela or Iran or Russia or some other country. And so there are other ways to hold reserves and to settle uh, payments. And that's what we're seeing right now. Hmm. Danielle says, uh, what future role do you see for the United Nations? Will it be able to be reformed to be more representative of sovereign states and people of the world and out of pocket of the United States and interest groups? 
Uh, you know, I spent most of every day for the last 22 years trying to help the UN. And uh, I have to tell you, I haven't been paid. They owe me $22 because I do it a dollar a year every year. I haven't seen my dollars yet, but I am uh, a believer in the United Nations, though uh, um, it's uh, easy to be mocked for that. I think the UN was one of the great visions by our greatest president, uh, who really was a, a great man, Franklin Roosevelt. I don't think that of too many of our presidents, but uh, he was he really was a great man, and he had a great vision, which was uh, um, that there could be a UN. Of course, it's flawed in, in many ways, but it's also completely essential. Uh, if we turn away from war and peace, we really do have a climate crisis. That's, a, that's another discussion uh, that uh, uh, has uh, engaged me uh, almost all all my career in life, and it's very real. And now, of course, we don't pay attention to it in the midst of uh, all of this mess. But the point is, as hard as it is to do anything in this world today, you couldn't, you can't do it actually without global cooperation. And to have global cooperation, you need institutions, and you end up with a UN. So if we didn't have it, we'd invent it. Then we would find out how damn hard global cooperation is for all the obvious reasons. First of all, politicians uh, have their power base and if they're, they are democracies, their electoral base at home. And so that is the starting uh, point, which is it's not easy to get the cooperation, but also all the points we've been talking about of uh, the kind of delusions of, of grandeur of the neocons and so forth, impedes it as well. So my answer is, uh, it, it's, it's a long talk. It, it, it um, would help me to explain why I've spent 22 years virtually nonstop trying to help the UN. I believe in it. I believe it's absolutely essential. Incidentally, all these, uh, the, the charge that the U.S. makes uh, of, about the U.N., for example, uh, you know, can't go to the U.N. Security Council uh, because of the veto. The, the fact of the matter is the veto has been not a bad thing, actually. If the United States had listened to many of those vetoes, it would have avoided multiple disasters. When Russia and China vetoed the Iraq war in 2003, that wasn't anti-US, that was just sanity. And if the United States had said, hmm, maybe we should reconsider, we would have saved several trillion dollars and a lot of global grief. So even whatever one thinks about the veto, it says something when major powers say, I don't agree, they should talk to each other. Of course, what's happened specifically with the Security Council is it's become no more than a theater for sound bites. They don't deliberate. They don't analyze things. They just give speeches. It's really degraded in its actual operation because if the Security Council actually studied any of the problems it's grappling with, really looked at the evidence, honestly brought in outside expertise, these problems are solvable. And I often think, if I might, since I work, I work a lot with the Vatican also, they have a very good idea when they elect the new pope, as you know, they lock the cardinals in the room. And uh, I've thought that we could, we probably could end the, uh, the Ukraine war peacefully if the Security Council was put in the chambers, the door was locked, conclave, and they were told, you don't come out until the white smoke appears above the 38th floor, they could actually solve this. And uh, of course, they don't do that. They want the sound bites for the news cycle. They're not actually talking with each other. Well said. Two more? Of course. Two more questions? Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, Commander Crossfire, 
asks, does Russia's political system allow for a strong leader to follow Putin or does it stifle strong ambition? What is the shape of the Russian deep state and what is the future of the post-Soviet uh, state or the neo-union? Ah, uh, such easy questions. We <laughs> should have stopped the, before. <laughs> the, the, the only thing I would say, and I don't know the answers to those questions, but the only thing I would say is one of the things I've observed in advising uh, governments in well over 100 countries over the last 40 years is how deep political cultures are. Political cultures are much deeper than economic structures or technologies and so forth. I really believe that if you look at Xi Jinping, uh, you can see a Han emperor there as well. And not surprisingly, because it was really in about 200 BC that China formed a centralized administrative state. It's in many ways brilliant statecraft arguably the most successful statecraft on average over 2,000 years. And the current state, though it's a, a completely different political structure in the People's Republic, looks a lot like the China's centralized administrative state. I would say, I don't know if you two as uh, real experts would agree with me, but when I look at President Putin, I see it's our... Uh, because the political culture is similar. It's not surprising. This is hundreds of years. It's deep. It came for reasons, by the way. There's history to it. Mm. And I see, I think we should understand this, by the way. This is why the finger pointing and so forth uh, about, you know, your, your regime is illegitimate. Yours is this. Yours is that. That's fundamentally profoundly naive and mistaken because mm. these political cultures are quite deep. China's not going to look like the U.S. system. The U.S. system has its own roots. Part of it is a debacle, by the way. Part of it is, uh, is very good. But it's, it comes out of, uh, out of a cultural matrix. And so I would expect Russia in the future to look like Russia in the past in, mm. in, in, in political culture. I don't bemoan that, by the way, because there are lots of ways to meet public needs and public goods. There's not just one model. And mm. the more you live and the more you know your own society and how flawed it is, the more you look also to other countries and examples to understand maybe there are some better ways to do some of these things. And that's why I you know, insist on U.S.-China dialogue, why I'm hosting symposia to bring together ancient Greek and ancient Chinese knowledge and so forth. This stuff is good that we talk to each other and that we understand political culture as a real thing and not as a ranking, as is, uh, as is so much done, and especially as a cookie cutter, that there's one way to do this and that's how it's going to be done. That view is, is part of the naivete and arrogance that gets us into so many problems. Well said. Akli says, what a privilege. Lots of respect for Professor Sachs. Hope to see him in Hong Kong one day. Sounds and good. <laughs> and Raul Pinto says, thank you, Mr. Sachs. Please direct the Vatican in the right direction, as I believe they are lost. And finally, Mr. Sachs, we have one question, which I think wraps, which I think will wrap it up nicely, hopefully. And it comes from David. So what happens now? <laughs> Look, the first thing is always remember their choices can be made. Mm -hmm. There is no set script. There is no absolute determined path. That is the single most important thing to say. When people say, oh, you could never negotiate with that guy, that's wrong. When people say, this war is going to go on for many years. That's inevitable. That's wrong. It may be true, but it is not inevitable. And so every day I'm going to talk about the fact that we should be negotiating. I'm going to say it every day. I've been saying it 
every day since before this war started. I begged the White House to follow a path of negotiation because I thought what President Putin put on the table was absolutely negotiable. I believe that there is a basis for peace now, today. Stop NATO enlargement. Russia is going to continue to hold Crimea, make a compromise in the Donbass region, have the, the war end and Russia's military leave and respect each other. And it's possible. It's not likely that it's going to happen today, but it's not impossible mm. that it happens today. I believe the U.S. and China have no intrinsic reason to be enemies because when I read, you know, just to say, uh, not to digress too long, an economist is trained not to think in zero-sum ideas that somebody's winning is somebody's losing. We're trained to think that there's a win-win, that trade is good, exchange is good, and so on. And when I read Foreign Affairs, our, you know, our kind of uh, pop journal of uh, foreign policy in the United States, everything is about whose power is up, whose power is down. It's all zero-sum or negative-sum thinking, which is, in my view, extraordinarily wrong and dangerous. All of this is to say we're not condemned to years of war. We're not condemned to a U.S.-China conflict. We're not condemned to watch Ukraine be destroyed under a, an ever-escalating barrage of uh, weaponry. We could actually sit down today and say, God, we got it wrong back in 2008, 2014, 2021. Let's figure this thing out. And it could actually happen because it would be better for all parties. So anyway, I have to apologize to the questioner. I'm lousy at prediction. I'm not, not terrible at prescription uh, because the idea is what could be done. And that's what I'm offering you. Awesome. Yaakov wants to know if you're, if you're planning to ever go on the Joe Rogan show. I, I'm which one? The Joe Rogan. The Joe oh, Rogan show. Have, haven't been asked, but it would be knows? a blessing. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we, we will we will end it there. Um, Alexander, any final thoughts before we sign what, off? What a program this has been! And can I just say, um, I I fully agree with what um, Jeffrey Sachs said that there are always choices. People who think that things the future is written in stone. The future is not written in stone. We are human beings. We have the power of decision. We have minds and conscience if we want to use it, and we can shape our future. We've done that in the past. We can do that again. And can I just also say I blush when Jeffrey Sachs called us experts on Russia. I wonder whether there is such a thing. I certainly would not describe myself as an expert on Russia. But anyway, thank you very much for those very kind words and for appearing on our program. Ah, great to be with you guys, and I'll be watching. Thanks. Absolutely, and we hope to have you back again, Mr. Sachs. Thank you very much, uh, Director for the Center of Sustainable Development. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Have a great morning, afternoon, or evening. Take care. Mm.